Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, God, open up our eyes uh, to see what you want to show us this morning. God, I pray that you'd open our ears to hear. And uh, Father, most of all, God, that you would take uh, what he said today and God, interpret it into a language that each of us understands. God, help us to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to each of us about our own lives, our own walk with you, our own journey, Father, today. In Jesus' name. Amen. A man and his ever-nagging wife went on vacation in Jerusalem. While they were there, the wife passed away. The undertaker told the husband, you can have her buried here in the Holy Land for 150 bucks, or we can have her shipped back home for $5,000. The husband thought about it and told the undertaker he would have her shipped back home. The undertaker asked him, why would you spend $5,000 to have a shipped home when you could have a beautiful burial here and it would only cost $150? The husband replied, long ago, a man died here, was buried here and three days later rose from the dead. I just can't, I just can't take that chance. So, welcome. To <laughs> you know what? It doesn't matter where I preach on Easter Sunday, no matter what church I'm in, I've got to bring that out because I just think that is a timelessly funny gag. Um, it could have been an ever-nagging husband. It's not a gender-based thing, but quite a, a, a funny gag. Now, all you husbands, you need to the point where you lean over to your wife and you go, if it was me, I would have paid. I would have got you home five grand hours. All right? That's what you do. And uh, we walk out of here with no issues going on. Um, I love Easter from the perspective of being a believer in the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing necessarily holy about today. Today is atmospherically no different to the other 364 days that we're going to have in the year. So we don't want to get caught up on a day. As a matter of fact, we don't even know historically the exact uh, time that Jesus was crucified, buried uh, and resurrected. There's no actual uh, uh, clarified date as to when it happened. So it might not uh, uh, be today. could have been, who knows. But um, there's nothing intrinsically holy about the day. But what I love about Easter is it's, it's, it's like in the Old Testament when the children of Israel would travel and something significant would happen. And God would say to them, I want you to pile up a heap of stones as a memorial. And in generations to come, as you journey with your kids and they see that pile of stones and they go, Dad, Mum, what's that? And you could tell them about the great things that God has done. So I see Easter as a memorial stone for society, a day where we get to stop and look at the stones and be able to communicate to each other and to the world and, 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 and say, look, this, this is in remembrance of the time when Jesus Christ hung on a cross, was crucified for our sins, was buried and was raised again, not for anything that he did, but because of the things that I've done and because of the things that you have done. So while there's nothing intrinsically holy in the day, it's a fantastic opportunity to stop and to reflect. In one sense, Easter is kind of like, it's like taking communion every time. You know, when we take communion, uh, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. So I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, we, we kind of celebrate Easter here in this particular fellowship. We take communion together as a family every week. So every week, we're kind of revisiting Easter. Every week, we're remembering that he was broken for us. We're remembering that he was crucified for us, that his blood was spilled for us. So Easter for me is the most significant time 
in the Christian calendar. In terms of memorial stones, things that we stop and look at, this is uh, Easter, sorry, this is way more significant than Christmas. But isn't it funny commercially and the way the world views it that Christmas is the big one and we all focus on that? Yet, you know what? Nobody disputes the fact that a man called Jesus was born. It's, it's, it's not disputed. You can go to secular historical, Bible, uh, secular historical scholars and historians who will talk about a man called Jesus from Nazareth who claimed to be God who went about and did miraculous cures and healings. Even the miracles of Jesus are attested to outside of the source of what we call the Bible, These, this collection of letters that's been bound together and given to us. Even outside of that, there is proof uh, that a man called Jesus was born and that he claimed to be who he was and that he did a lot of the things that the Bible historians in the Bible say that he did. It's all verifiable. The stumbling block is not the birth of this character called Jesus. You know, the stumbling block is not even the death of this character called Jesus. Because you will find other historians and other documents will talk about this guy called Jesus who was crucified. It's not just only found in the Gospels, but you'll find stuff outside. Archaeology and, and, and anthropology and people like this, they're discovering more and more and more that perhaps the Bible story is actually true. Science and, and things like this, other, other arts are beginning to support more and more the things that the Bible talks about in terms of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, um, I can't remember his name, but he was a professor of philosophy at Harvard University many years back. He's retired now. And what he did was he took uh, the story of Jesus and the, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and he used uh, what they call probability theorem, where they look at all the random acts surrounding a certain thing and they do a probability. What are the chances of this actually of being a real event and these things actually happening? And this, this master of philosophy, he came to the conclusion that it was 97%, 97% chance that the Jesus story is actually true. This is coming from a university lecturer, from a professor of philosophy. So there's a lot of evidence and things out there that talk about that we can support ourselves on, hang our hats on, and know that what we're celebrating today, it actually happened. It actually happened. Um, uh, in, I'm having a mind blank here, faith, is it Hebrews, Romans, 12, faith is the substance of things, Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews chapter 12, 11, sorry, now faith is what, what does it say, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, so faith is substance, that means that there's something to it. If I said to you, I have a substance in my hand right now, you'd go, well, I'm not quite sure how to take that. But if I picked up this cake and said, I've got substance in my hand, you'd probably listen to me now. As I described to you, there's substance in my hand. Faith has evidence. So when we talk about faith, I think sometimes people out there think that we just have this blind faith in some fable story that makes us feel comfortable in our weak and tired moments. We just believe in this thing called Jesus because it gives us something to dream about and to think about because when we go through pain and suffering and low points in life, it comforts our soul to think there may be something there. And I think that's the concept that a lot of people have when it comes to faith. But the Bible teaches us, history teaches us, archaeology teaches us that we have a lot more than that. Our faith is not hung on some airy fable. Our faith is hung on something that has substance and something that has evidence to it. And that's what we celebrate today. That's why we're here today. That's why we worship. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this statement, the writer of that book. He says, you know, if Jesus Christ was not resurrected from the dead, we are to be pitied above all people. We are the most pitiable group of human beings to ever brace this planet 
if Jesus did not die, was not buried, and did not raise again. Matter of fact, I heard one uh, theologian put it this way once. He said, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then you are a fool to believe anything, he said. Anything. But on the flip side, if Jesus Christ did raise from the dead, then you are a fool if you do not believe everything that he said. Everything that he said. I want to talk a little bit this morning about my top... Until then, if we can just back to this seat. It's, it's... I don't think the devil likes the resurrection. What do you reckon? I don't think, I don't think it's his favourite topic. I don't think it's his favourite topic. We're going to keep talking about it anyway until they tell us to leave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. Paul says this. He says, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel or the good news, the story. Yeah? We got to go? Well, that concludes our Easter service this morning. We need... I was reading 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4. Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, which also you are saved. So he's about to tell them now the very uh, means by which their salvation was able to be received by them. What was it? What's the core non-negotiable of our faith? There's a lot of, how many of you know, there's a lot of negotiables about faith. You can believe this, believe that, believe God can do this, you can't do that. You can believe what you want and all that stuff, but there's a non-negotiable that without which you can't call yourself a Christian. Uh, And it's this. It says, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that A, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and B, that he was buried. Why was he buried? Well, to verify that he was dead verify that he was actually crucified so that nowhere down the track could people say this was a mythical event. He writes specifically he was crucified, he was also buried. Again, it's, keep in mind these guys are writing to real people in a historical context at the time. And he says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, here's what I want to share for the last 10 minutes of this morning. I want to give you my top five reasons why I personally believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The top five reasons why I personally believe in the resurrection of Christ. My first reason is this. It's the empty tomb. The fact that there was an empty tomb. Where was the body of Jesus? Where was the body of Jesus? You know, there have been all kinds of theories that the Romans took it and that the religious leaders took the body of Christ and that the disciples took the body of Christ. If we were to gather that evidence and present it in a court of law situation, most of that would be thrown out of court. Most of it would be considered inadmissible in court. In Matthew 26, verse 62 to 66, Matthew tells us about this particular event. It says, On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, the Roman governor, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I'll rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, the stone they rolled in front of the tomb was about one to two tons. That's a big stone. 
And it was a circular stone. And there's a hole cut in the cave and they put the body in and they roll the stone in place. Now, when they roll the stone in place, it's actually rolled at a bit of an incline. So it's not just a case of if you're going to move a stone, you're just pushing it, you're pushing it uphill. You ever heard that phrase, pushing it uphill? That's, that's what it is, you're pushing it uphill. And then on top of that, they put building blocks in front of the stone to make it virtually impossible to get into. And here's what they did. They had a stone, a one to two ton stone with a seal of, of, of stones in the front covered up with a wall. A Roman seal was placed on it. It was law at the time that if anyone tampered with a Roman seal on anything, you would suffer a very undescribable kind of a death. You don't mess with the official Roman seal on anything. So this tomb had the seal to tell anyone passing by, this is owned by Roman authority, don't mess with it, don't touch it. On top of that, they had a legion of Roman guards there. Now there were 16 soldiers in that legion. Each soldier was responsible for six square foot of space. So that's all they had to worry about, was six square foot of space. They were not allowed to rest or fall asleep during their watch. They weren't even allowed to lean against something during their watch. They had to stay attentive. If one of them fell asleep during their watch, that person was uh, burned to death in their clothing. Not only were they burned to death, the other 15 guards that were on that watch with him were also killed. So as you can imagine, this is a very, very secure place, a very secure uh, uh, tomb. If the Romans took the body, if the Pharisees took the body, how many of you know they could have killed this whole movement called Christianity the very first time one of the believers of Jesus said, hey, guess what, he's risen. All they had to do was produce a body. They were unable to produce a body. Where was the body? So when I think about the empty tomb and I look at what was put in place to secure that and I think about the theories around it, I can't come up with any other conclusion other than, well, he must have been raised from the dead because there's no other logical way that that tomb could have ended up empty and for the story to carry on for as long as it has. What other reason is there? other than the empty tomb. I remember seeing a cartoon once and there were two Roman soldiers and they were standing beside the empty tomb and one looked deeply troubled and the other one was shrugging his shoulders and he said to the other one, he said, don't worry about it, in 100 years from now, who's going to remember? But here we are today because we do remember that the tomb was empty and that Jesus raised from the dead. The second reason why I believe in the resurrection is because of the first initial witnesses. If you go back to the accounts, keep in mind these were historical accounts written for people to read to make up their mind about this man, Jesus. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they've written accounts, they've gotten eyewitness reports and they've written it as a historical account of the life of Jesus. Okay? They were written to be read by people so people could have a look at the facts, so they could read the information and make a decision about what they were reading about, what they were hearing. It was not blind. Faith in the beginning was not just this blind thing. It was based on evidence. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all wrote about the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's what's interesting about it. The very first witnesses, and you can go to all four accounts and have a look, the very first people to see the empty tomb and to run off and begin the story were females. Every one of the accounts were females. Now, in the culture of the day, if you wanted to start a good story, you've got to start with a credible witness. A female's version of events would never stand up in court back in the day. They were not credible 
witnesses. So if you were going to be writing an account of something that you wanted to go on, if you were writing an account of something to be deceptive, to try to trick the world into believing something, why would you start with the most incredible witness you could possibly find? Why would you do that? The only conclusion I can come to is because it was actually women who actually saw the tomb first. Otherwise, why would you include that in the story? Surely something like that included in the story would, would mean people would read it straight away, the initial people, and go, we can't believe that because it was... But the Gospel writer said it doesn't matter what you believe. We're here to give you the facts. We're not trying to sell you a story or fabricate information to get you to believe it. We're just going to give you the facts as they stand. And the facts are the first people to see were females. Why would you leave that in there? I can only come to the logical conclusion again that it's because that's actually how it happened. The third reason why I believe in the resurrection is because of the lives of the disciples. Keep in mind, remember before Jesus was crucified, all the hoo-ha and the miracles and the stuff they did, what happened when he was crucified? They scattered. They scattered. Fast forward to, to, say, 30 and so on years after the resurrection. Nearly every one of those disciples suffered a death, not a natural, normal death. They were killed because they stood on a platform and said, I cannot deny the fact that I saw that man resurrected from the dead. What, who goes that far with a lie unless it's true? What transformed them from running away from him when he was taken in the garden to all of a sudden dying physically, literally, for their faith? If this was not true, if this was a hoax, at some point you'd give it in. I don't know about you people, but uh, my kids will sometimes come to me and they'll go, oh, Dad, can you just, just pretend this situation or this scenario when Johnny comes out? Just pretend to say that you know, there's no um, dinner left because we ate it all or something and you slept just to get a reaction out of him. This is what mean kids, this is what they do to each other. Let's just get a reaction out of him. You know? And, you know, and I say to my kids, no, I won't do that. Now, they think I'm being an ogre. It's not that I'm being an ogre. I can't do that. I'm not a good liar. I'd go, look, James. <laughs> and I'm gone. I can't tell lies. I'm not a credible liar. So to carry something on for that long, to that point, it's bizarre and incomprehensible to think that these guys died and went through what they went through for the sake of something that they did not personally experience. Who would do that? Nobody. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel that he was worthy to be crucified right side up like Jesus. This happened. This is not just... This, you won't even find a lot of this stuff in the Bible because it's out there in history books. Non-believing people writing history going, this man died for this belief, this faith. He was so passionate and so convinced about it that he physically died for it. Philip, the disciple Philip, he apparently converted the wife of a Roman official, led her to faith in Jesus, and as a result of that, her husband had him cut up and killed. All for an apparent lie? I'm not sure about that. Thomas was killed with spears as he took the good news of Jesus to the continent of India. And he was run through with spears by people. The other Philip was put, uh, Bartholomew, sorry, was martyred for his faith. James was stoned and clubbed to death in Syria as he spread the good news of Jesus. Simon the Zealot was killed in Persia because he refused to sacrifice to their local gods, the sun god over there. 
Matthias, who replaced Judas, was burned to death in Syria as well. These guys scattered out throughout the known world, taking this message, and the core of the message was this. It wasn't that Jesus Christ heals the sick. The core of the message was not that Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. The core of the message was that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And if he did that, then you better believe everything else he said. This was the core message that these guys carried to the world, and they died for it. Who would die for something if you knew it was a lie? If you knew that it wasn't true? There was such a conviction about it. And I think the greatest witness of all is the Apostle Paul himself. The Apostle Paul, who used to be called Saul, had a conversion, met God when he was on his way to kill more Christians, women and children, have them fed to lions, have them killed. Why? Well, because of their faith and their belief that this man called Jesus actually raised from the dead. And on his way, he had a conversion experience. And here's what he writes about himself, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He said, I was out there killing these people. I was so passionately against this. In Galatians 1, and verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I actually tried to destroy it. Again, this is a historical person, a real person. A real person who had an encounter with God. Went from being the sole mission in life was to destroy this faith and this belief to being somebody who was eventually killed because he couldn't deny it any longer. The third reason why I believe is because of the early disciples. I'm left when I look at their lives with no other conclusion than Jesus must have raised from the dead. The fourth reason why I believe is the continued existence of the Christian church 2,000 years later. Why do you think we're sitting here today? Why do you think that all around the world today, people are gathering in buildings and homes and parks and bushlands and wherever it is in the different countries and continents? How could something like that traverse such a time frame and traverse the continents of the world and still be such an immovable movement, a force, if it was a lie. If I was going to start something like the church, I, I would have started it differently. First of all, I, I would not have had the most incredible witnesses I could possibly have, historically recorded as the ones that first saw what happened. I wouldn't do that. You know? There's a lot of things about this movement. I wouldn't start it as a little group that's actually illegal and that's being persecuted and everybody's being killed who turns to it. It's not the great way to start a club. It's not the most attractive way to get people to join your little group, you know. Our witnesses aren't credible and you're probably going to get killed and no one's going to like you. And by the way, we're illegal. Do you want to join? How are we still here 2,000 years later as the largest religion on planet Earth? Don't read, don't believe the news. Islam is not the largest religion on planet Earth. Christianity is the largest religion on planet Earth. As of 2012 census, there were 2.2 billion people worldwide who believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2.2 billion people all around the world. And the final reason, the fifth reason why I believe in the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, is because of my life and your life. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 and 8, just going on from where we started, Paul says this, he says, and that Jesus in his resurrected form was seen by Cephas, who was Peter, and then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, 
of whom the greater part remain to the present. He's taking a risk here. He's writing a letter going, you know what, this Jesus that I'm writing to you about, um, uh, he was seen by over 500 other people. Here are some names of some people. Here's the letter. I'm circulating a letter around for everybody to see what I believe and I'm telling you that a lot of those people are still alive today so you can go and find them and ask them for yourself. Did this really happen? I mean, he's really putting it out there. He's putting legs and substance and evidence to his faith going, you don't have to just believe me in this. Go and talk to these other people who have encountered Jesus. And I have encountered Jesus in my own life. Not a dead, crucified, buried Jesus, but a resurrected Jesus. And so have many, if not most, or all of you in this room as well. Paul points to the lives of those other people that encountered him as being the evidence for the resurrection. And I want to say today that our lives are evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Jeff, I might get you to just come up and play a bit of music for us. We're about to take communion together. Chloe, if you want to pass that around, we'll take communion and we'll, we'll finish up. But my top five reasons why I believe in the resurrection. Number one, the empty tomb. Number two, the first witnesses. Number three, the disciples. Number four, the continued existence of the church. And finally, my life and your life. I was 19 years of age, 19 years of age, when God revealed himself to me. And I saw Jesus for the first time. I didn't see a religious system. I didn't see something that gave comfort to my soul because I had a set of values to live by. I didn't see something that looked better than what I had. I actually encountered a spiritual reality of God. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't one of these guys searching. Or, you know, I was just an average sort of dude doing his stuff. And God came and revealed himself to me. You know what? I can still remember the day I was thinking about this. I remember being up in Brisbane, visiting a place up in Brisbane. And I remember leaning on the bonnet of a car, on, on the roof of a car. I was about to get into a car. And I had two, one friend drove me up to Brisbane and we were about to come home. And I remember leaning on the car with this. I still remember, can picture it like it was yesterday, leaning like this with the door open behind me and I've got my hand on it. This friend over here is talking to this guy. I'm not even involved in the conversation. And all of a sudden, something dropped inside of me. And I remember having this, hearing this voice in my spirit said, you are a child of God. And I still, to this day, can remember that moment. And it was like all this weight was lifted off my shoulders. It was like my eyes were opened up. The world looked clean. That's the best way to put it. All of a sudden, the world looked clean to me. It just looked like, wow. I remember my sister years ago having an encounter with Jesus. I remember her waking up the next day and I remember her saying to me, uh, I can't describe it to you, Alan, but all I can say is I woke up this morning and I heard the birds outside the window. And she said, I literally felt like they were actually singing just for me. She said, I went outside to see the day and she said, I looked at the blue in the sky and I literally felt like, God, you've put that there just for me. An amazing, amazing feeling to realize that we can come into relationship with God, that we can encounter God ourselves. And what's more amazing is it's not on the basis of what we do. It's never been on the basis of performance. You see, the reason Jesus died was because we could never perform good enough. That's the point. 
That is the point. We lose it. I think we get saved. Many of us in this room, we probably come to Christ and then we lose that and we start working for it. We, we, we start going on guilt trips that are greater than the guilt trips we used to have and we start feeling more condemned now than we did before we met Christ. And that's not God. It's because along the way we forget about grace. Paul, Paul says to the Galatians, you've fallen from grace. So you've forgotten what this is all about. It's about what God did for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross, not about what we do. Today is a great opportunity for us all to refocus and to be able to say, like the Apostle Paul says, in, if you keep reading on in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am who I am by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Not because I am intelligent, not because I'm smart, not because I cleaned up my act, not because I fought really hard and overcame my wickedness and my sin. No. I am who I am because 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin for me because somebody has to pay the price for sin. It's the law. And God said, I don't want to put that penalty upon my creation. I love them too much. So I'll come down and I'll do it myself. And that's what the suffering of the cross was all about. He took the sin of mankind upon himself. He was crucified. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he had overcome. He hadn't succumbed to sin. He had overcome sin. And our response this side of the cross, our response today is to simply surrender and go, God, if you want my life, take it. I don't come with great boasting. I don't come with arrogance thinking I've got something wonderful to give you. As a matter of fact, I come before you today knowing that I have nothing. But I ask you today, take my life. Change me. Come into my heart by your spirit. Make me the person that you want me to be. Father, I want to thank you this morning, Lord, for what you did for us on that cross, Lord, that, God, that one moment in history 2,000 years ago is as powerful today as what it was back then. That time has not dissipated any of its impact, any of its effect, or any of its value. The power to transform a life is as powerful right now here today as it was when that thief hung on the cross next to you. And he said, remember me when you come into paradise. And you turned to him in an instant and said, you'll be with me. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room today. Lord, I pray. Father, if our hearts are not right before you, Lord, I pray that we will get it right. God, I pray if there are people in this room who are searching. God, I pray just as you did with me, you would open the eyes of their heart and you would show yourself to them, God. Lord, that they wouldn't just have some blind, airy-fairy faith, but that their faith would have substance, their faith would have evidence because of the work that you do inside of them. Lord, I thank you that you said that you would send your spirit into us and your spirit, you would cause us, you would help us to live the life you want us to live. We can't do it without you, God. We can't do it without you, Father. And so we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the means by which today we can be saved. The means by which today we can come into relationship with you. We thank you. Let's just eat and drink together.
We're going to finish up now uh, our service. If you're here today and you are not 100% convinced of your heart before God, if you were to die today and you can't honestly look inside and go, I'm confident, I'm confident that I will go to be with God in heaven. If that's you, let me ask you, grab someone that might have brought you today or somebody that you know and open up to them. Say, look, would you, would you pray for me? Prayer's not a, not a scary thing. It's just an invitation to say, God, this person's really interested, God. I, I, I want you to come and do something. But think about the resurrection today. Think about the impact for your life and the impact on the world around us. And if you're not sure, please, please, please talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody. We're going to hang around up the front here for a little bit. Uh, if you want to come and chat, I'd be happy to chat with you. Otherwise, have a fantastic week. We're going to see you guys. Uh, we won't see you next Sunday, but please, it's going to be a fantastic Sunday. And we look forward to hearing uh, what's being shared and what God does. And otherwise, we'll see you in connect groups or we'll see you around the place. Have a great rest of your Easter Sunday. Enjoy tomorrow too. Bless you guys.